<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 71. It's titled, Please Don't Panic. Monday morning, I woke up to see the Chinese stock market had fallen almost 9% while I was sleeping. European stocks were down over 6%. The U.S. market had not yet opened, although stock futures were suggesting the U.S. market opening would be brutal. And as I sat there, it raised an interesting question. Why does the U.S. day and its market open after Europe and Asia? In other words, why when the sun rises in Japan on Monday is it still Sunday in the U.S.? The international date line, that, that, that invisible line, that longitude line that separates one day from the next, could have e- as easily been placed in the Atlantic Ocean instead of the Pacific, in which case Monday would start in New York before Tokyo and in Tokyo before London. London investors could then wake up to find the U.S. and Asian markets plummeted overnight. So how did this all come to be? In the early 17th century and, well, in the 17th century and earlier when communication and travel were excruciatingly slow compared to today, there really wasn't a need to coordinate times and dates. The days started when the sun went up, wherever you lived, and you didn't really think about was it day somewhere else because the reality, you couldn't fly there. It would take days, if not months, to go somewhere else that was would, you know, essentially would, what you would say would be in a different time zone. In 1764, the Englishman John Harrison, who was a horologist, which I had never heard of that term. Horologist is somebody that studies... Time and timekeeping begins with an H, H O R O L O G I S T, I believe. So he discovered a clock that could be used to locate a ship's position at sea with great accuracy. That discovery led to dividing the earth into longitudes. So British shipping vessels could figure out where they were in time and place relative to London. Ground zero then of longitude, these invisible vertical lines, so zero degrees was set in Greenwich, England at the observatory there. This was England's prime meridian. But other countries located their prime meridian within within their own countries because, logically speaking, the center of their world would not necessarily be Britain. And so the initial timekeeping... And in terms of different times relative to to place occurred because of shipping. But then trains were invented. In the early days of trains, before the invention of telegraph, trains could actually travel faster than even the fastest mode of communication. Can you imagine that? You would be on a train 
and it would arrive before any type of message could arrive, either telegraph, telephone, mail, whatever. And, and so that means you had to really tightly coordinate train schedules, otherwise, you know, just to prevent collisions. Later, though, with the invention of the telegraph, there was still no standardized time system, as each city in the U.S. and other places around the world had their own time zone really based on the sun. In the U.S., for example, there were 300 different time zones. Later, the U.S. US railroads tried to standardize things, and they came up with 100 time zones. But there still was no standardization across the globe in terms of what time was it. Even even countries that might be north and south of each other might have, have different time zones. So in October 1884, there was an increasing need to coordinate transportation and time. And that culminated in the International Meridian Conference. It was held in Washington, D.C., And at that conference, a proposal was adopted in which the prime meridian and the center of timekeeping would pass through Greenwich Observatory in the United Kingdom. Greenwich was a logical choice for for the prime meridian for ground zero because Britain had the most ships. And they had been using Greenwich as their prime meridian since 1767. So with this global prime meridian set and everyone in in the world agreeing to it, then the, the system of time zones and the international date line evolved from there because with, with zero degrees being in Britain, that meant everything east of the UK until you reach that international date line, which I believe is at the 180-degree parallel for longitude, everything to the east was earlier in the day than the UK and everything to the west was later in the day. So that meant financial markets for U.S. investors starts after Europe and Asia. And that means as investors, we have all weekend, if you're a U.S.-based investor, to fret about the stock market and economic developments. Then you can rise early on Monday morning and see what's occurring in Asia and their markets, what's occurring in Europe. And that's what we had this past Monday. Asia and European markets were plummeting. Investors were panicking, and then what happened at the opening? The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell over a 1,000 points at the open because everyone, not everyone, many, many investors put in their trade to sell at the opening. And a couple episodes ago, I guess I think it was episode 58, I talked about ETFs and whether ETFs were becoming too popular, but discussed the dynamics of ETFs and, and how, how they're priced and how you can have a dislocation in terms of the net asset value of the exchange-traded fund versus the underlying stocks. And there's arbitragers that can buy and sell the underlying stocks and the underlying ETF to try to bring that potential price dislocation in line. But when you have such a strong, massive opening with huge sell orders, you can have huge dislocations. And I saw it Monday. I pulled up IVV, the iShares S&P 500 exchange-traded fund, and in the opening minutes, it had fallen over 20%. The low of the day 
was 20, it was down about 25%. Now, it bounced back within minutes, but there was such a huge volume of trade that there was a dislocation. The market overall, the S&P was down, I think, roughly 6 to 7%, but the ETF was down 25% before trades were sus- or trading was suspended, and then clearer heads prevailed. But that brings up a really important point. Many of us invest using exchange-traded funds. And so it's very different from the days when you invested with a mutual fund because mutual funds trade at the end of the day. With an exchange-traded fund, it trades throughout the day, which means you have to place an order just like a stock. And here's the thing. Never place a market order for any security. What's a market order? A market order is when you'll take the best price available by the market. It's filled at whatever the market price is, which means if there's a huge price dislocation, like you saw in the early trading minutes on Monday, that price could be filled 25% below what the initial or the, the closing price was on the previous trading day. What you need to do is do a limit order. And what a limit order is, is you set What is, if you're selling, the minimum price you're willing to take if you're selling a security or if if you're buying a security, you you put in the maximum price you're willing to pay. And so you, you set the bounds. And that's just simple trading and it's important element because you don't you don't want to be exposed to the vagaries of the market, particularly when you can have these price dislocations like you see with ETFs. Now, second lesson is don't ever sell at the open. Don't don't wake up in a panic and say, I got to get out because I don't know what is happening. I've talked a number of times on, the, on this podcast about focus on the extreme, not the average outcome, which means we need to be cognizant how far and how fast markets can go over a short period of time and make sure we've scaled our exposure to risk assets for our ability to recover from that. We don't want to be waking up on a Monday morning and see markets are down 9% in some area of the world and feel like we have to get out because we can't afford to lose money. You should have a target allocation that, that, that meets your ability to withstand that type of volatility. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. 
So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Some investors are very comfortable with volatility, and their investment approach is they'll do a global asset allocation. They'll primarily use exchange-traded funds or index funds. It'll be a strategic long-term allocation. They might rebalance quarterly, annually. We talked about rebalancing in episode seven, the in terms of efficient markets and, and, and whether you should rebalance or not. But it's a very, very viable approach, long-term, strategic, buy and hold. And you have bear markets, you have bull markets, and you ride them out. Other investors, more like me, are willing to adjust their asset allocation based on market conditions. They're unwilling to ride out these bear markets and would rather pull back risk and wait for better opportunity. There is not One way is not better than the other. Now, there's a caveat for this second way to do it. You can't adjust your asset allocation because you feel like markets are going to fall. You have a sense they're going to fall. That That is allowing emotions to take control of investing. You have to look at some type of objective criteria, be it valuation data where, you, where you're looking at valuations and you can say, markets are overvalued. I'm not comfortable with that risk. I'll pull back that risk. Or you might look at valuations in conjunction with something else like economic trends, the economy based on purchaser manager, purchasing managers indices or PMI suggest or leading economic indicators indicate the economy is slowing. And combined with higher valuations, I might reduce risk. Or you might even get more sophisticated and look at market trends, mar- market internals, momentum, the level of fear and greed. I tend to look at all three. But within that, the the analogy I like to give is like a thermostat. You think about the thermostat on your furnace where you set it at 70 degrees Fahrenheit and the, the temperature in the room falls below 70 and so the, the, the furnace kicks on, and it kicks on for a little bit, and then it, it warms it up to a little over 70, and the furnace kicks off, and it keeps moving back and forth. If you think about that in terms of markets, you, you can't time the market like that. You cannot. There's no way to adjust to sort of have this very, very narrow range of conditions. So I'm, I'm in the market. I'm out of the market. That, that ultimately 
will lead to underperformance because of the fees, because of the taxes, but more importantly, because it's impossible to figure the the market's just too volatile to make those types of moves. So currently, if you're listening to this in late August 2015, markets have sold off the S&P 500 at least through the day the start of the day when I'm recording this podcast on a Tuesday is is down 11% from its high. It's not it's so it's it's in a correction territory. It's not a bear market which would be a loss more than 20%, but it has sold off as have other markets around the globe. It's a correction, but it it's very in my experience it is almost impossible to time corrections if you're using objective data. Because if if you're reducing your risk because of a feeling, you're likely to get whipsawed. If you're using objective criteria, then you have to wait for enough of the things that you're looking at, such as spike in volatility, the, the percentage of stocks that are below let's say, 200-day moving averages or the different other survey level of fear exhibited by investors by survey data. You have to have multiple signals that you look at to say, this appears to be a, a downward trend that there's enough warning signs that I don't want to, to ride out. And markets can often fall 10% before you make that decision, because you don't want to make it prematurely because then markets could rebound. Now, I ultimately on Monday reduced my equity exposure, and I shared that with members of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. I've been talking about on there how I have been reducing my risk in my portfolio, increasing the quality as market conditions have deteriorated over the past several months. So market conditions, in my mind, as measured by valuations, economic and central bank trends, and market internals were neutral or yellow as of the beginning of June. And so I've not been trying to increase risk. I've been reducing risk to some extent. But I want to do that in the context of market history because I can't predict the future. I don't think anyone can predict the future when it comes to markets. And all that leaves then is what's happening now and what is happening in the past and try to put what is happening now in context of what's happening in the past or has happened in the past and recognize that markets are very, very complex. So it's not necessarily going to repeat itself, but just to make adjustments based on market conditions. So I believe that we, as I mentioned last week, are in a secular bull market. And an extended period, an uptrend that generally accompanies a, a global expansion in terms of the economy. I've mentioned how stocks have compounded at about a 17% annualized rate since early 2009. And the sell-off that is currently occurring does not appear to, to be – I mean, there is no indication that a global recession is imminent. Because that's what you need to look at. When, when we have a correction, as we've had, you need to look at, all right, is this correction in the context of a slowing economy 
or some indication of a global recession or or not. And the latest PMI data that came out just a week ago, this is by market, shows that Europe continues to be in expansion. Actually, their PMI data was a little higher. U.S. continues to be in expansion. Japan showed improving PMI data. The only country that didn't is China, and their their PMI actually shrank, suggesting their economy continued to slow, but China is slowing from a 7% growth rate. Perhaps it's going to be slower than that. China is, is very much a black box. We don't know, and that is causing some fear in the market. But you get back to, all right, does the economy appear to be slowing? Because it matters if a correction turns into a bear market. During periods when there is a bear market, when we are in some type of slowing economy or recession, and, and the trigger here to indicate that is what's known as a negative yield curve. Are short-term interest rates higher than long-term interest rates because as an economy appears to be slowing, long-term interest rates decline and oftentimes short-term interest rates are higher because the central banks have been raising short-term interest rates to prevent the economy from overheating. We're far from that. We have a positive yield curve, not a negative yield curve. But when there's been a bear market, a, a downturn that's greater than a 20%, when Markets have been in, essentially when you have a negative yield curve, the average loss is 32%. Now, this is U.S. data. This is data from Ned Davis Research. So the mean, the average loss was 32%. It's happened seven times since 1950. The average bear market length, how long did it take? So a 32% decline over roughly 360 days. So it it lasts about a year. It's an extended event when when the economy appears to be slowing. When you have a, and that's called really a, to some extent, a year long, that's a secular bear market. When the economy is expanding and when you're in a secular bull, you can also have bear markets, and they're called cyclical bears within a secular bull market. The average decline for that, and in this case, it would be a positive yield curve, would be 21%. So much less, 21%, and much shorter, about 160 days. So that's the average. The median is down 19.4%. And there's been roughly, I think, 15 to 20 occurrences of that since 1950. So it happens more often where you have these these cyclical bears within secular bull markets. Because they're shorter, sort of 140 to 160 days, they're sometimes called waterfall declines. That's an important distinction. So if we're having some type of bear market right now, and and most of the indicators, I mean, I, I don't know, but when I look at market history and I look at the number of indicators, it's quite possible this correction could turn into a bear market, but generally, would if we look based on market history, would be a loss of around 20%. It could be short-term in nature. And I'm particularly cognizant of it being short-term because this is the fifth year of the decade. 
and it's a year that ends in five. And going back to 1880, the average, there's been 12 times where we've had a fifth year in the decade, and the market has always been positive. Every fifth year, going back to 1880, the stock market in the U.S. has been positive. The average gain has been over 20%. We're also in the third year of the presidential cycle. So this is the third year in the U.S. The average gain in the third year of the presidential cycle is around 13%. And so market history suggests that a we could still have a very strong recovery and market rebound this year. So is this a shorter-term correction or a short-term bear market within an economic, continued economic growth within a secular bull market? And, and we're going to stage yourself a rally. I don't know. That's what the market history says. And that's all, I, that's all we have. We can't sit here. I'm not going to sit here and predict the future. I'm going to look at the market conditions. And when you often see this type of waterfall sell-off, it's because valuations got overextended and got high. Particularly in the U.S., markets were overvalued. Perhaps we'll again get this sell-off and it'll make valuations more reasonable and then we can continue on with our secular bull market. The point to remember here, though, these are not, these are not predictions. This is just looking at what has happened in the past, looking at what's happening now, put that in the context of what's happening in the past or has happened, and then objectively make a decision. I made a decision to reduce risk, and I'm waiting for better investment conditions, more favorable to add back more risk. I still have meaningful exposure to stocks, master limited partnership, non-investment grade bonds, and, and other risk assets. And in fact, one of the things with this sell-off is you're not seeing a huge amount of distress in the non-investment grade bond space. You're not seeing spreads or their, their yield differential between non-investment grade bonds and treasury bonds widen out significantly. They've widened out a little bit, but it's primarily been energy-related companies. So bottom line, please don't be a panicky investor. Don't invest based on feeling and emotions. Don't do market orders. Do limit orders. Understand market history. Understand the current conditions. Objectively look at it and put it in the context of what has happened historically. Hopefully I've given you some data regarding bear markets and where we are currently and the potential loss, at least in the context of history, if this current correction turns into the bear market. And recognizing we are in a year, fifth year of the decade, third year of the presidential cycle, which has historically been double-digit gains. Why has the market always gone up in the fifth year of the decade? No clue. But it has, and, and perhaps this time is different. We don't know. Just a reminder, on September 8th, Tuesday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm hosting a webcast, How to Improve Your Investment Portfolio Performance. We'll look at what is a reasonable return expectation for your portfolio and how do we come up with those reasonable return assumptions. We'll look at four keys to boosting 
your portfolio returns, and I will answer your money and retirement questions. If you go to moneyfortherestofus.net forward slash live, or you can just go to the homepage, you can register for that webinar. If you can't make it that night, go ahead and register and I'll send you a link to be able to see the recording. I wanted to share with you two very quick reviews on iTunes that I really, really liked because they were short and they they capture what I try to do with money for the rest of us. The first is by Zacobeo, begins with an X, 2005. It says, excellent podcast. Why? Complex topics made simple from someone with industry experience who knows the value of storytelling. I definitely try to tell some stories to help you learn, give good analogies. The second is from a member of The Hub. It's by Fran again. She says, essential financial education for starters and middlers as well as old hands, plus very interesting info on The Hub for people who want more specifics. Great stuff. I recommend it. I very much appreciate all the reviews on iTunes. It, it helps me and on Stitcher to help me to get some feedback. If you would like show notes for this episode, you can get that at moneyfortherestofus.net. And that's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide. And I'll email those show notes to you on a weekly basis. I'm also providing other valuable content on that insider's guide. If you want more information on Money for the Rest of Us Hub, it does reopen on September 1st. That's at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this podcast has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. It's simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.